Good afternoon. My name is Jasmine, and I'm here with my two co-hosts slash friends, Alyssa and Anika. And this is Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, It is November the 12th, 2022, which is also my dad and his wife Zita's 16th year wedding anniversary. So happy wedding anniversary. Um, You'll be listening to this on Sunday, November the 13th. So Alyssa, Anika, how are y'all doing today? Hi, Jasmine. Um, Hi, Anika. Doing well, I think. Just got back from the first vet visit with my new cat. So yeah, everything is going well. How old is it? Uh, She is one and a half. How are you doing, Anika? Uh, I'm good. Um, I had like a little bit of a staycation earlier this week, still basking in the glow of that, um, getting ready to deal with like my real life on Monday, but enjoying this last bit of the weekend before that happens. What did you do like for your staycation? Um, I did like a bunch of boring, deeply unsexy things. Like, um, I did have like a massage. That was my like one fun thing. I watched a show that actually came out seven or eight years ago, but I enjoyed immensely called the show about the show. Never heard of it, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, it's actually a Brooklyn show. Like Brick co-produced it. Shout out to Brick. I took like a sound editing thing for free through them. We're so the show is like very meta. Like each episode is about the making of the previous episode. There would be like references throughout to the show being on cable and like episodes coming out. So Okay, well, that does sound like it's some Brooklyn-based media that's, I guess, made in the community, made for, by and for community people. So I'll check it out. Maybe some of our listeners will as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's called The Show About The Show, and the filmmaker's name is Kave, C-A-V-E-H, Zahedi, Z-A-H-E-D-I. All right, and on that note, uh, on this week's episode, we're going to have a local story that is about um, a racial justice initiative that was on the ballot in the latest um, election, as well as a rightward shift in New York state politics and a little bit about a rightward shift in national politics after election day. For national news, we'll be talking about a Texas case that is challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, which is now being argued at the Supreme Court. For world news, we're going to be talking about the inclusion of more disabled activists and also improvements to accessibility for the UN Climate Change Conference. And for some good news, we're going to talk about Tesla's stock tanking. Let's get started with the local story. And Anika, you have the floor. I'm sort of doing like an election, a New York City area, like election um, postmortem. And I think we probably all have our problems with electoral politics on this show. But in New York City, there were three different ballot proposals um, around like racial justice and those all um, succeeded. The overwhelming majority of voters voted yes on them um, on Tuesday. So this story is by 
Arya Sundaram. It was published in Gothamist on November 8th and modified the next day. And it's titled New York NYC Voters Back Racial Justice Ballot Proposals by Wide Margins. I'm going to skip the intro because it pretty much lays out what I just said. Um, But each of the three proposals won about 70% or more of the voter support with more than 97% of ballot scanners reported, according to the tally by the Board of Elections. Support was robust in all but Republican-led Staten Island. Quote, this is a new day for New York City, said Jennifer Jones Austin, chair of the commission and CEO of the Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, in a statement. Today, New Yorkers have made history, taking bold, unprecedented steps to upend systemic racism in local government in a way that other cities around the nation can follow. Under the measures, New Yorkers will gain a new city agency focused on racial equity and a city charter preamble calling on city government to target racial disparities in a range of areas. The city will also have to annually measure a new, quote, true cost of living metric. Um, And it goes on to explain that um, these, the whole, like, initiative, um, was started or like prompted by um, the protests of June 2020 um, and the previous mayor uh, put together a racial justice commission to, you know, suggest changes for establishing racial justice or racial equity in the city. The first measure, and I'm reading from the article again, um, which uh, received more than 70%, 72% voter support Um, We'll add a preamble to the city charter calling on city agencies and officials to work toward a just and equitable city for all, including in housing, education, and the allocation of resources. Um, It will also include an indigenous land acknowledgement um, of the Lenape people who originally inhabited New York um, and recognition of the toll of systemic racism. The second question, also backed by nearly 70% of voters, creates a new city agency and commission to lead a citywide planning process aimed at improving racial equity. The city and its agencies will have to quote, will have to craft racial equity plans every two years, along with their strategies and goals to improve racial equity and reduce or eliminate the city's racial disparities. A new commission on racial equity appointed by city elected officials will propose priorities for the planning process and a new office of racial equity would coordinate it. The third proposal receiving more than 80% support requires the city to create and annually measure a new true cost of living metric, including housing, childcare, transportation, medical care, household items, and other expenses. The change aims to shift the city away from the federal and local measures of poverty Formulas used to determine eligibility eligibility for public benefits, but widely criticized as too low and outdated. Um, And there's more, but I'll leave it at that. Um, I was like skeptical of these proposals, but I did vote yes on all of them. Um, It's something to watch for sure. Um, I do think it's like interesting that like Eric Adams came out in support of these measures. And I really don't think anybody who like truly agreed with these initiatives would have the like unmitigated support for the police and, you know, really short-sighted budget priorities um, centering like law enforcement. 
that Eric Adams has demonstrated. So we'll see whether it ends up like diverting energy or like actually um, doing good work. And I guess like these two things are also both can happen as well. The like New York metro area also like played a pretty big role in state politics and national politics because a couple of like different um, changes in terms of like voting patterns, but also um, redistricting in New York City, particularly Southern Brooklyn um, and Long Island. And basically Republicans won all four races on Long Island, um, including the chair of the the DCC, DCCC chair, Sean Patrick Maloney, conceded his race on Wednesday in the Hudson Valley. I think like the, um, it's like, it's scary to see like the way um, people who are living in areas that aren't necessarily even like dealing with like um, increased risks of like interpersonal violence are able to like construct like their like political worlds out of like fears of that violence like happening in places where people are like, we need more like racial justice and to acknowledge like the impact of like years and you know centuries of like racial discrimination i just wanted to like for the earlier part um we were talking about the election and the racial justice um ballot initiatives or i guess the proposals um i i agree with you like i feel kind of skeptical as well um but i kind of thought it was interesting as well that um just the phrasing of you know like for the racial equity plans like having i guess like adding in that you know like there should be uh, they should be updated like every two years things like that i think will i mean i guess it's kind of moving in the right direction but i it's kind of a wait and see thing because a lot of that stuff sometimes i feel like it's not I mean not necessarily when it happens in politics but just kind of anywhere it's always I always kind of feel like it's just for show or it's just a way to to kind of say like oh we we are I don't know like it's I guess performative like DEI statements and stuff yeah. but then it's like, like what is actually happening yeah yeah so I, I'm always like skeptical when things like that come up like I, I mean I think it's a good thing that you know people are talking about say like there there seems to be you know, like they want they they want to help reduce like some of the disparities, but I just feel like it's never it's usually performative in some way. <laughs> I also voted yes on all of them. I really did like the cost of living thing, and I think that that's important because the federal guidelines just do not match up with what it actually costs to live in New York City. Um, but yeah, I agree with what the both of y'all were saying about as far as like adding that language about equal, like racial justice and everything. I do feel like sometimes it can be like, look, we did this, but then simultaneously cutting back on material things that would actually make that more of a reality. So I hope that that's not the case where it's like people will get placated by the messaging or the fact that, yeah, those words are in, you know, the city charter or whatever, but what else is actually being supported to make it true? 
Like it, it feels like they're like there's this apparatus being set up to create like more documentation, but there's like no guarantee about that actually like translating into like any sort of like material change. <laughs> like we know, you know, if you give mothers money like that like has like X impacts on like the health of their children or like you know the way that their kids are like able to perform or that like people need like stable housing in order to go forth and do all of these other things whether that be like hold down a job or like you know be able to like ensure uh like regular access to like education for their kids and yet like I can totally see all of these things just being like a land acknowledgement is like read before like any city programs or like this commission is just like creating recommendations and like the city council like doesn't necessarily like act on them or like it calls calls for things without like you know there's like no budget like allocated to them like yeah and like what about like how did you both feel about the election results overall I feel like I did. I saw like a lot of campaigning for Kathy Hochul um, at the Labor Day parade. But aside from that, yeah, not a whole lot. This is something I like listen to um, Brian Lehrer in the mornings. Like, and this was something that I heard like multiple pe- people saying, like um, calling into that show. Yeah, it's like people think New York is so blue, and I'm like, ah. Have you both noticed like a recent? I mean, I know everyone has been talking about it, but have you actually noticed like where on the trains there are these constant announcements about um, police on the platforms? Yes, I hear. But like literally at every station, like it. I mean, I I know it's clearly like a script, but it's it's just really bizarre the way that that has. I feel like in the last couple weeks has been increased. Yeah, yeah. I remember like hearing about like um the plan to like basically like flood the subway with cops, and I was like, this isn't gonna go anywhere. And then like within a week. At every station, there were, like, multiple police officers. Um, I, yeah, I feel like there's, like, a lot of, um, a lot of this stuff is, like, really to, like, placate people who don't live in the city. I don't know. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying about, like, we know what are the things that work to ameliorate certain problems but the solutions what some way somehow is always more police you know it's like I think people are responding to a very real increase in I think visual markers of poverty and then they are interpreting that as crime and danger yeah and not wanting to support things or I guess not having it made explicit to them like what are the practical things you can support that would help make us all better off but they'll support these punitive things that don't actually work other than to sort of scare and disappear people and harass yeah you know mostly black individuals in the city so Uh, So, yeah, in the interest of time, we're going to wrap up the local segment. 
you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and this is LCD Sound System with New York, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. We'll be right back. New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. Like a rat in a cage, pulling minimum wage. New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. You're safer and you're wasting my time. Our records all show you were filthy but fine. But they shuttered your stores when you opened the doors to the cops who were bored once they'd run out of crime. Oh, please don't change a thing Your mild billionaire mayor's now convinced he's a king And so the boring collect I mean all disrespect In the neighborhood bars I'd once dreamt I would drink Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we're going to get into the national news story, which is, um, as usual, like a very sad one. Uh, so this article was written in the Texas Tribune. The author is Roxana Asgarian. I will not read the entire thing because it's like about seven pages long. There's a lot of detail, uh, but I do encourage you to read the full thing on your own. Um, The title of the article is Texas Case Could Change Adoption Rules for Native American Children and Undercut Tribal Rights. Jennifer and Chad Brackeen, an anesthesiologist and a stay-at-home dad, already had two biological children when they decided to foster a child. God started to speak to our hearts about opening our home for more, Jennifer explained in a now-defunct blog. The evangelical Christian couple in Fort Worth began caring for a 10-month-old boy in 2016 and the next year decided they wanted to adopt him. But the boy was of Navajo and Cherokee descent, and attempting to add him to their family brought the Brackeens up against the fraught legal, cultural, and emotional dynamics of adopting Native American children in a country with a long history of victimizing and destroying American Indian families. 
under the 1978 Federal Indian Child Welfare Act, preference had to be given to the boy's family and then his tribe before a white family like the Brackeens could adopt him. The law aims to preserve Native communities and Native children's sense of belonging to them. When a Texas family court judge ruled in 2017 that the boy should be placed with a Navajo non-relative in New Mexico, the Brackeens were dismayed. We felt this would do real emotional harm to him, Brackeen wrote on her blog, saying that her family offered the boy access to their culture, one that he would not have had in his biological family. The Brackeens were ultimately able to adopt the boy. The papers were finalized in January 2018. Still, Jennifer wrote on her blog that the passion we have to amend this law remains. It is destroying the hearts of children across the country every day, and it is devastating them. A partner at Gibson Dunn, a global law firm with clients like Chevron and Google, agreed to represent the family pro bono in a suit to challenge the constitutionality of ICWA. The Brackeen's relatively minor family court dispute snowballed into a Supreme Court case that could upend the entirety of federal Indian law, with enormous implications for Native children and families across the country and for their tribes. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments Wednesday in Brackeen versus Holland. The Brackeen suit was joined by several other adoptive and potential adoptive families and the, state of, the states of Texas, Indiana, and Louisiana, and has wound through the courts since it was filed in 2017. Sarah Kastelik, the executive director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association, which helps tribes, states, caseworkers, and families understand and comply with ICWA, says that the boy the Brackeens adopted, like other Native children, is entitled to his own heritage. When adoption is held up, particularly in religious communities, as a call from God, Costellic says the needs and feelings of adoptive parents often take center stage, sidelining those of the other parts of the adoption triad the children themselves, and the families they come from. For a long time, Costellic said, non-Native people have been trying to save Native children who don't need saving. The Indian Child Welfare Act is part of a long and brutal history between the United States government and Native tribes. The forced removal of Native Americans from their lands brought about by the Indian Removal Act of 1830 led to the deaths of thousands of Natives. In the late 1800s, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, founded by Henry Pratt, became the model for assimilation of Native children into American society. More than 50 such schools proliferated around the country. Pratt's famous motto, Kill the Indian, Save the Man, encapsulated the theory behind the schools, which took Native children far from their families and tribes, forced them to speak English and practice Christianity, and forbade them to grow their hair or wear their traditional clothes. In the 1950s and 60s, as the American Indian boarding schools fell out of favor, a new wave of assimilation project policy went into effect, adoption of Native children into white homes. The Indian Adoption Project, which ran from 1958 to 1967, 
was a partnership between the federal government and the Child Welfare League of America and churches around the country whose stated goal was the adoption of Native children by white families. At the time, matching of adoptive children with their adoptive parents was a common practice meant to allow adoptive parents to pass their children off as biologically related. One little, two little, three little Indians and 206 more are brightening the homes and lives of 172 American families, mostly non-Indians who have taken the Indian waifs as their own. A 1966 Bureau of Indian Affairs press release boasted. By the 1970s, the removal of Native children to white families was so widespread that when the BIA commissioned a federal task force to research the phenomenon, it found that 25 to 35 percent of Native children around the country were removed from their homes, and 85 percent of those children were adopted by white families. The Indian Child Welfare Act was created in response to the report, and Congress passed the law in 1978. One provision allows tribes to enter as a party in a Native child's case, and sometimes even to transfer the child's case to tribal court. Another gives placement preferences first to the child's family, then to their tribe, and then to other Native tribes before opening the child up to other options. One key aspect requires that child welfare officials make active efforts as opposed to reasonable efforts, the standard in most child welfare, welfare cases, to reunite Native children with their families. More than 20 states signed on to a brief in support of ICWA, and 10 states, including those with high Native populations like New Mexico and Oklahoma, have codified ICW, ICWA or similar provisions into state law. Children need their families. They do, Costellic said, even if they don't have perfect families and no family is perfect. The Supreme Court heard several lines of argument relating to the constitutionality of ICWA on Wednesday. The argument with the greatest potential to undercut the law was one-sided by Paxton in 2019 after the original district court judge ruled that ICWA was unconstitutional, that the law is impermissibly based on race. The tribes argue that their relationship with the United States is a political and not a racial one. Mandating a placement preference for Black adoptive children with Black families, for instance, might be ruled unconstitutional but tribes with the, and their supporters argue the standard is different for Native children. If the High Court finds that ICWA is unconstitutional because it's a race-based law, Native leaders fear that would open the floodgates to challenges of many other key laws that their citizens rely on. So again, this is um, something that was written in the Texas Tribune. I know it was lengthy, but I haven't really heard um, much in the news about this case, and I thought it was important to have a lot of the historical background. Uh, but I do encourage you all, if you're listening, to please um, read the full article and also follow any news updates about this important Supreme Court case. Yeah, I hadn't really heard about it. Like, I I think I remember seeing like someone had tweeted something recently, but not, I hadn't heard about it. I didn't know about the article that you just. 
I wonder, I wonder like how the Supreme Court, where they are on um, actually moving forward with like the worst tendencies in like U.S. like legal precedent here. I was reading the SCOTUS blog entry that was about this earlier today, and it's just there. There is a lot of language that sort of goes over my head, but you get the gist of like it's the same usual characters that are using these you know, high-minded words to basically come down on the side of, like, it's acceptable to remove these children, you know, from a culturally competent environment or, you know, from their own communities and give them to these other people to raise. So it's, um, I would just say, like, with the direction the court has been going recently, like, I'm unfortunately not that hopeful that they're going to make the right decision. But this is the Indian Child Welfare Act is something I was aware of a few years ago because of a, I think it was a Radio Lab episode, because I hadn't heard of it. I wasn't taught about it in school at all. But, you know, being aware that, oh, there is this act in place, you know, for the sake of trying to preserve Native culture to keep the children as much as possible within, if not the birth family, then within the tribe, if not within the tribe, then within a tribe. And really to the reference that they made to making active efforts, the article gave some examples, like, for example, if you're saying that um, in order for a native parent to adopt a, a native child, like they have to attend certain classes. Okay, then it's on the state to provide the, like make the actual moves so that that's possible. Don't just like say, well, you have to do it. You have to figure it out. And then if they don't, you remove the kid or you don't allow them to keep the child. So those types of things, but Yeah, I mean, I really got chills listening to the evangelicals' words and, like, what that woman was writing in this blog. Like, we're on a mission from God, and they're going to take this higher. Even It's like, it's not good enough that you already succeeded in having the child taken away from the other relative. You have to try to take it to the highest court so that other people are also able to do that. It's just, ooh. Right. I thought it was, um, I don't know, interesting isn't the right word, but the part where since they're trying to say that it's unconstitutional because it's treating people differently on the basis of race, and then part of the argument was like, well, it would, it was basically like, well, it would be unconstitutional if it were like a black child, but in this case, it's different. And I'm like, well, I feel like it is and it isn't. It's kind of, it's a very similar concept. It's just, you know, technically like black people are not like a sovereign nation within the United States. So that is different. Um, But I feel like the overall concept is very similar of, you know, what it does to a child to remove them, not only from their birth family, but also to break that connection with their heritage. I don't like I feel like in some ways, because even with um, with black children that are kind of adopted and not 
again like adopted or not or there's no effort to kind of keep them within their culture or family even if it's not their immediate family I guess it's all kind of related to trying to get these children like more assimilated I guess like not like cutting off cutting them off from their culture yeah yeah and that's also like I didn't know that it's also considered technically a form of genocide or I didn't know until recently that within the definition of genocide you can include things like removing children placing them with a different culture and try and making a deliberate effort to bring them up in and indoctrinate them into a different culture is a type of, you know, trying to wipe out a group of people. And I'm like, I, it seems very textbook that that is what is happening, especially with this couple and the things that the mother, the adoptive mother was saying about like, we're exposing him to our culture, which he wouldn't be able to get if he were with his, uh, with the native tribe. And I'm like, well, yeah, cause it's not his culture. You're trying to force him to be brought up in a white Christian evangelical culture, which is not his. Yeah, it was like the way that it was phrased, like offered access to the culture as if it's, you know, like this is a a prize, like a benefit or. Yeah, yeah. this reminds me of um, like when. Uh, the Supreme Court like overturned Roe. There were like all of these like anti-choice protesters in the streets with like the "will we will adopt your baby" sign. Oh God! And it's just like a really it is like a genocidal project, but um, having like a one strategy out of several that's about like taking people's children, ensuring that. Uh, children are brought into the world and that they can like claim access to that right it's like like having a supply of these children and also it's so sinister because it's like okay well let's create the scenarios that mean it's more difficult for these people to care for their own children and then use that as justification to take the children away And not only that, we're going to go by this, you know, white is right, white is better. And there's also class implications. It's not always solely about race, but the assumption that, you know, well, this family has more money, therefore it's better for the child. And that's, that's not always true. It's often not, you know, poor people been having kids since the earth started spinning. But, you know, this enforcement of this, like, there is one right way to be a family and it has to be this white Christian way is so harmful. And, you know, I didn't, the article, as I said, is super long, but they have a lot of anecdotes from people who had to go through years of trying to find their roots again as Native kids because they were taken away and then they found out that their birth mother had been taken away. And then it's like this endless chain of separation and like very deliberate, like trying to cut off that link to their community. And it's really, it's heartbreaking. We're going to go to our next musical break. And this song is on being from a broken home by Gil Scott Heron. 
You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I want to make this a special tribute to a family that contradicts the concepts, heard the rules but wouldn't accept, and women folk raised me and I was full grown before I knew I came from a broken home. Since I lived with my grandma down south, where my uncle was leaving and my grandfather had just left for heaven, they said, and as every ologist would certainly note, I had no strong male figure, right? But Lily Scott was absolutely not your mail order, room service, typecast black grandmother. I was moved in with her, temporarily, just until things were patched, till this was patched, until that was patched, until I became at three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, the patch that held Lily Scott who held me, and like them four, I became one more. And I loved her from the absolute marrow of my bones, and we was holding on. I come from a broken home. She had more than the five senses. She knew more than books could teach, and raised everyone she touched just a little bit higher. And all around her, there was a natural sense. As though she sensed what the stars say, what the birds say, what the wind and the clouds say. A sense of soul and self, that African sense. And she raised me like she raised four of her own. And I was hurt and scared and shocked when Lily Scott left suddenly one night. And they sent a limousine from heaven to take her to God if there is one. So I knew she had gone. And I came from a broken home. You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation mark. Welcome back to objection to the rule. And next up with our, well, wait, let me back that up. Welcome back to objection to the rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next up, we have Alyssa with our world news story. Yeah, so um, for today's world news story, I'm going to be talking about the UN Climate Change Conference, which is happening right now in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And it goes from, uh, it started on November 7th, I believe, and it goes through November 18th. Um, And it's basically just a conference where uh, countries are coming together to take action um in achieving the world's collective climate goals as agreed as agreed under the Paris agreement um and the specific article I- i'm uh going to be uh talking about is from the associated press um it's titled people with disabilities raise voices at climate talks and it's written by Drew Costley and Teresa 
de Miguel, and it was last updated on November 10th. Um, so I'm I'm going to kind of summarize the article or paraphrase some of um, some of it, and some of it are direct quotes. Um, uh, so basically, uh, last year, um, climate activists uh, who focus on disability rights um, scored a major victory at the climate change conference. Um, and they basically they gained official status as a caucus that's recognized by the UN. Um, and so that means that this year members of the caucus will have more access to the conference um, and making it making it easier to connect with other attendees, um, including disability rights organizations and country delegates. Um, and also because of uh, because they're now kind of, they have this official status as a caucus, they'll be, uh, they'll actually have an official space to gather at the conference. Um, and there has also been some changes to the venue to make it more accessible. So people with mobility issues or chronic pain can now enter the conference via a separate line. So they don't have to wait in line as long. And there are also more ramps that go into the buildings and also onto the stages. Um, uh, so according to the article, uh, although uh, these changes have been made, there's still a lot more that can be done. And Jason Boberg, who's the chair of the Disability Caucus and the founder of the Disability Climate Action Network called Sustained Ability, said that the conference organizers can make sure those who use wheelchairs and walkers can move around more freely and also have sign language interpreters at all events. Um, Boberg has been a key proponent pushing for inclusion of disabled communities in climate action at the international level. Um, according to the article, he um, He's figuring out where loss and damage finance will come from and how to secure some of it for disabled people living in disaster-prone areas. Um, so that's front of mind for members of the Disability Caucus. And loss and damage is, um, is the payment for harm caused by climate change. Um, Boberg also mentioned that one of the next goals for the caucus will be uh, formal elevation of the group to the level of constituency within the COP, um, so uh, the conference of the parties, so the climate change conference, um, and a disability consist constituency would have the authority to convene meetings with government officials and suggest speakers and attendees for official functions. Um, and they would also have the right to participate at workshops and events that are otherwise closed. Um, and this is a quote from Dee Woods, who's the Food Justice Policy Coordinator for the UK-based Agricultural Union, the Land Workers Alliance. Um, and uh, she said this at a November 2021 event. Uh, we are the most impacted because we're left behind. We're left on the sidelines and our voices need to be there. And she was talking about the last um, UN, or she said that at the last UN climate change conference. Um, Boberg said also that it is important for people with disabilities to be included in the UN's Action for Climate Empowerment, which is a short-term action plan 
Um, this is the UN's framework for getting people, organizations, and communities to reduce emissions and prepare for the effects of climate change. If disabled communities are included, they can get more resources from countries for climate action and prepare for climate emergencies. And this could mean assurance that relief shelters are accessible, or it could mean that there's a creation of registries of disabled people to help governments deliver extra assistance to the right places um, in the lead up to extreme weather. Um, so before this, before the uh, this official disability caucus um, at previous climate change conferences, um, again, like people were people were always meeting and organizing, but they were doing it um, unofficially. Um, so uh, Boberg said back then we'd meet in the corridors and cafes and wherever we could get a space. Um, he told the Associated Press in an interview. Uh, days before this year's climate change conference that um, more than once he's seen language that recognizes disability rights appear in the draft text of negotiations. Um, so, for example, funding disability rights organizations um, to do climate action work. But then the language was cut from the final agreements at the negotiations. And then uh, Kara Sherwood Oregon, who's a, an indigenous and disabled climate justice expert, said, um, you hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And I like to keep my expectations not too high. That sounds really cynical, but that makes it a little bit easier to engage in the process. Um, that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, it. Most of it was just kind of uh, I think it's, I guess, kind of good news that um, this climate change conference, or and this is mostly because um, these these communities and these people, these advocates have been working on this for years, but they're now kind of more officially recognized and have their own caucus within that conference. So they're, you know, they're they'll be able to kind of um, to participate, to convene meetings, and actually have space at the conference. Um, whenever it happens. So I think that's like a good, I'm sure there's a lot more work left to be done. Because again, like if they're, you know, if the if if a lot of what the language that's coming up is being cut from the final agreements, then that's really not helpful to them. So I'm sure there's still a lot more work to be done. But at least like this is a step in the right direction. That thing about like, directories of disabled people like freaked me out I'm yeah same. So terrified um and yeah I don't know I mean I'm it makes me like curious like um what like the internal conversations are like or like the disabled folks who are like not like working in this area like how where the, where they are on this like what what sort of conversations are happening and like between who to like get to like these um proposals yeah because i'm i'm also kind of i am kind of curious like what the language like so the the kind of draft language i guess that are happening or that's being written into these agreements that i guess eventually get cut but i'm curious like what what that actual, like, who's, I guess, who's creating, who's kind of part of creating 
the, those draft texts and um, what's being written. Cause yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's also interesting that it's just now that they were, cause I think I, I don't know if it was this article or a different one, but there was someone who was speaking at the last climate change conference that uses a wheelchair and they weren't able to access the stage to do to and they had they were doing like a speech. Yeah, I remember time. hearing something about that. So it's it's kind of wild that they're just now like the, <laughs> thinking of like oh we need ramps to like go into the the buildings or on the stage. Um yeah, yeah it's yeah, that registry um yeah, because I don't because I feel like to begin with, like the government isn't really providing <laughs> assistance anyway to in general. Absolutely. So yeah. it's yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I see I see what ostensibly the point in that would be, but it can go the opposite direction so quick because even like in the wrong hands that can be like a very bad thing to have some kind of government or state list of all of these people so I'm like yeah it does make sense like in the event of an emergency to know like these are people that you know you have to give them priority to help get them out because they need extra assistance but then you could see someone deciding pointedly to do the opposite exactly you know which i you saw that with katrina and think like certain people being left behind so yeah i mean i hope it gets to the point where whatever language is being put into things or like policies that are coming up like they're included in that um because it, i mean it sounds like they're not yet part of that or maybe they are and you know it's just still being shut down but um it's good that they are i guess like they got that more official status so they're they're starting to be included in those conversations more well thank you for that world news story um and this is for the good news or it's good news to me in some way um it's also something that is global in scale and this is from forbes it was written by jonathan ponciano Tesla stock tarnished by Musk Twitter antics. Very nervous months ahead after $650 billion crash, analyst warns. So though the stock market rallied on Thursday after a better than expected inflation report, one formerly bullish Tesla analyst has soured on the stock during its recent plunge, blaming CEO Elon Musk for souring investor sentiment as he seemingly focuses attention on and plows money into Twitter. In a morning note to clients, Wedbush analyst Dan Ives cut the firm's price target on Tesla shares to $250, less than 18% of a bullish $1,400 target from January, and cautioned that the next few months should have Tesla investors very nervous as the stock reels from a steep 43% collapse since late September. Musk has essentially tarnished the Tesla story, Ives wrote, saying the billionaire's Twitter antics have fueled the stock crash and could materially damage Tesla's brand amid controversy around Musk cutting 50% of Twitter's employees' $1,400 
only to reportedly plead for some to return, and then once again selling Tesla shares last week. And um, if you're an active Twitter user, I'm sure you're aware that um, things have taken a a bit of a nosedive um, after he took over, which I'm very sad for that um, because Twitter is very near and dear to my heart you know, especially black Twitter. And it's, it's actually been an incredibly important tool for so many people around the world, like politically building community, knowing what's happening in the news before the real news. Uh, So I'm not happy to see the platform struggle, but I, anything that's bad for a billionaire is good for my heart. So I hope he keeps losing money. I think it is good news, but uh, yeah, it's sad. Like I, I really, I don't use Twitter that much. Like I, I'm pretty much just like lurking on it, I guess, but I do love it for that reason. Like, I feel like it's, there's a lot of, like you said, Jasmine, like a lot of news that you get the real news, I guess, before the news and It's been nice to kind of see, it's sad, but I guess like seeing like Black Twitter kind of (laughs) recapping like all the highlights of Black Twitter over here. So that's been nice to see kind of, but it's sad how much it just kind of, like people have left the platform. It's, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's falling up. It's a hot mess. I hope someone saves it. We need to keep it like can someone just like re either start a new thing just with the same or similar <laughs> functions or i don't know like would some how, would someone have to all these people he's firing they could just they do your own thing or something i don't know yeah have you all considered um any other platforms I have not. No, I'm gonna be on the bird app until the wheels fall off. I don't really know. There was other one people. People are pushing like Mastodon or yeah. something like that. Yeah. But I don't think it functions in the same. I feel like there's nothing that's similar to how Twitter is like yeah. that. Like, and the back and forth. Like you don't get that on other platforms. Yeah. Do y'all have any Twitter memories that are special to you? I don't know. There's a lot. I also, I feel like I also, I'll miss like um, Jabuki, like his yes. tweets. Yeah. But I'm going to follow him on TikTok now that I'm on that app. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, he was great. He really, he really was the blueprint for what's happening now with these people paying money to spoof real yeah. um, entities. He was doing that when it was free. And was, you know, king of it. Yeah, I think his, like, FBI, MLK tweet. Lord. All time. Yes, excellent. That's an excellent one. Yeah. What about you, Anika? Do you have any particular things you'll miss when it's finally gone? Yeah, I mean, I have, um, I'm partial to other social media. um, And... I don't know. I've definitely just like experienced it in like a really different way from from YouTube. Like I I've only like interacted with what has sort of like broken the Twitter containment system. Right. 
Yeah, I'm gonna. Well, one thing that came out of Twitter for me was I'm friends with you now because I, I Twitter is how I found out about um, the summer Hi. of the uprisings after George Floyd was murdered. Like there were a lot of people sharing ways to get involved in mutual aid um, and like other, you know, movements for you know, racial justice or being against police violence against black people. And that's how I got into a mutual aid group. And that's how I met Anika. So I think that that will be my, I'll, I'll say that that's like a big thing that Twitter helped me with, like actually connecting with people in the real world. Building community, Jasmine. Yeah. Digital, IRL, all of it. I'm really, I'm going to miss it. So on that note, we have done a show. You've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Please stay tuned in for more on Brooklyn-based community radio. And in the spirit of saying, you know, a slow goodbye to the bird app, this is Bone Thugs and Harmony, the crossroad. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Have a good rest of your week. Bye. Judgment comes for you. What you gonna do when it ain't nowhere to hide? When judgment comes for you, cause it's gonna go for you. Gotta show that you can lean on me.